have read quite a few books over the past six to eight months as I've researched for this series on Seeking the Peace of the City. I think the one that has bothered me the most, troubled me the most, is one I've been reading recently. It's by uh, Robert Lupton, and it's called Toxic Charity. Uh, Lupton has spent 40 years living and ministering in uh, an at-risk urban neighborhood in Atlanta. And over the years, he has seen many wonderful Christians uh, from many wonderful churches launch program after another to seek the peace of his corner of the city. And his conclusion that, that forced him to kind of get to the point where he wanted to write a book about it was that many of them, although well-intentioned, have, have actually done more harm than good. And he sets forth his case on page one of Toxic Charity. He says, in the United States, there's a growing scandal that we both refuse to see and actively perpetuate. I have worked with churches, government agencies, entrepreneurs, armies of volunteers, and know from firsthand experience the many ways good intentions can translate into an ineffective care or even harm. Our entire society, from school children to corporate CEOs, from small churches to massive government agencies, upholds the wonderful value that helping others is a big part of the American character. The compassion industry is almost universally accepted as a virtuous and constructive enterprise. But what is so surprising is that its outcomes are almost entirely unexamined. Those in the neighborhood on the receiving end of this outpouring of generosity quietly admit that it may be hurting more than helping. So why do so many well-intentioned efforts to help ultimately go bust? Well, Lupton says it's because we don't always understand the unintended consequences of our actions. Somebody who's thought a lot about this is a professor named Douglas Hall in Boston. He's what we call an urban missiologist, someone who studies mission in the city And he puts it like this in an article. Uh, He he says that one reason why folks like us can sometimes do more harm than good in the city is because we fail to see that the city is more like a cat than a toaster. Got it? That makes sense, right? Well, let me explain. He says, suppose that there's something wrong with your toaster. You can take a screwdriver. You can pop off the plate on the bottom. You can pull off the, the broken part throw it out, put a new one in, put the plate back in, and voila, you've fixed your toaster. But suppose that there's something wrong with your cat. Don't take out a screwdriver, open up your cat, and pull a part out. Uh, Cats don't work that way. Cats are living systems in which all the parts are interrelated. So we have to treat them differently than we treat toasters. Cities are more like cats. They are systems. They're all interrelated. And we need to approach the city as a large interrelated system. Now, when, uh, when we had little children, we always say this word wrong. Is it the thing you put over the crib? Is it mobile? Mobile? Young parents, do they even use that anymore? You know, these little mobile? Okay. And we, mobile. We'll call it mobile. We'll call it mobile. 
And we'd put, put, we had one with airplanes on it that we'd put up over, um, over the crib, and then the little one would, would bop it. And uh, if you hit one airplane, all the airplanes move, right? The airplane farthest away moves just as much as the one you hit. And that's a picture of what an interconnected system is like. If you touch one part of it, everything moves. But it's hard to tell sometimes by touching this part what other parts you're going to set into motion. And an illustration of, of this that I read long ago in a science fiction novel, uh, the main character went back in time millions of years and he gets off his little spaceship and there's this path he has to stay on, but he slips and he steps off the path and he crushes one little butterfly. And, and he wipes it off his boot and he thinks, no big deal. Well, he gets back on the path, gets back on his ship, comes a gazillion years back into the future and, and he gets off the ship and the whole world as he knows it's radically changed. And the premise is that the world is so interconnected that wiping out a species a million years ago actually affects the, the whole living system. Sociologists call this the law of unintended consequences. When you, when you go into a city like we are trying to do and, and try to influence it even for good, try to make changes... Even when your heart's in the right place, you don't always know what the unintended consequences might be. And, and sadly, often, uh, those are not good. Now, Lupton tells a lot of painful stories in this book. Uh, he recalls the Christmas Eve when he was, he just moved into the neighborhood that he lived in, a, uh, an at-risk neighborhood in Atlanta. And he was enjoying a cup of coffee with a family uh, in the home when a knock came on the door and a well-dressed uh, family from the suburbs came in bearing armfuls of neatly wrapped gifts, and the children just exploded off the sofa, and uh, the family came in and started doling off gifts. And, and Lupton said he noticed the, the father of the family quietly move uh, out of the room and into the kitchen. And he writes, I was witnessing a side of charity I'd never noticed before, how a father is emasculated in his own home in front of his wife and children for not being able to provide presents for his family. How children get the message that the good stuff comes from the rich people out there and is free. I think his book pains me because it reminds me of, uh, of how many times I've done something similar. And if I, if I am honest, I think that... Uh, that uh, we even did this a little bit when we began All Souls Church. Um, we were very excited about the church. We uh, had a great vision for the church. We had resources for the church and uh, felt there was plenty of need everywhere. We came downtown and started up. And uh, only gradually did I find out that, that we had uh, hurt some of the ministers and leaders that had been here a long time. Uh, and if I had to do it over again, I would have gone more slowly. I would have spent more time trying to discern what they were learning, what they were doing, and, and perhaps even uh, seek an invitation into uh, the neighborhood. Uh, thankfully, those brothers have been gracious to me. We now eat and pray together monthly, and they've become close friends. But I think I'm an example of, uh, of an unattended consequence. Um, I, I think of another time... Uh, many years ago now, 
when I had gone to a conference, I think it was a Promise Keepers conference, or I'd read a book on racial reconciliation, and uh, I'd begun a, a, a partnership with a, with a friend, an African-American pastor in, on the east side, and our churches had started to do things together. We did a Habitat house, and uh, we had a wonderful worship night where their worship group came, and it was a powerful experience. And, and uh, I was thinking about that today, and I, I realized that I think I got excited about some other new vision and just kind of let the partnership go. Uh, we didn't really follow up much on it. I don't know, maybe I read another book. And I've since uh, met with that pastor and apologized to him and tried to restore that relationship a little bit. But I, it, it made me wonder um, what the unintended impact was of that. I mean, could you blame that congregation the next time a, a white pastor comes down having just read a book on racial reconciliation on his beach vacation and wants to start a relationship? Lupton's book hurts as well when, when I think of uh, many conversations I've had over the years with well-intentioned Christians who, who for some reason or another, want to come into the city and, and serve. Um, but they really don't understand what they're doing or how the city works. And the conversation usually goes something like this, um, well-intentioned guy. God has given me a vision, Pastor, to start an after-school ministry in Mechanicsville. Uh, I'm raising funds. I'm so excited about this. Do you know who I can talk to? Me. Well, let's back up a second. Uh, How long have you been in our city? Well-intentioned guy. Well, about six months, uh, I had a dream. God gave me a dream for this vision, and and I'm clear I'm supposed to do this. Me, well, I believe God speaks to us through dreams, uh, but there are actually a lot of people who already live in Mechanicsville who have the same dream, and they already have after-school ministries going. Uh, Have you talked to any of them? Well-intentioned guy. Uh, No. um, Pastor, can we totally uh, be honest here? Well-intentioned guy leans forward, speaks slowly. You know, so many of these ministries don't really preach the gospel. Um, I want to pre- I want to start a ministry that honors Christ. Will you help? Me? No. Um, now, that's a true story. That's based on a lot of conversations I've had over the years. And the problem is that that this dear Christian. As, as, as with me, he doesn't understand that he's entering a complex, interrelated system. For, so let's suppose he raises the money. Maybe he's from a big church. And he's got the resources. He goes in. Well, what's going to happen is he'll pull away scarce resources from the ministries that are already there, uh, like Wesley House and Just Lead and Clinton Chapel and all that. He'll stir up competition and jealousy and bitterness. He'll put the children in an awkward dilemma, especially if they have uh, funner games. Um, and he'll harm the neighborhood that he means to help. And because it's so hard, he'll probably be gone in five years and uh, it won't be good. Lupton's book troubles me because it reminds me of how often this law of unintended consequences comes into play in this city. I think if you've been in our church for a while and you're attracted to seek the peace of the city, you might have experienced this. You walk into your car after church tonight, uh, a homeless uh, person comes out of the shadows. Uh, he explains that his family is in the car and that he needs money to repair it and he has to have it now and know the mission is closed and 
uh, or would you please give him some money? And so, uh, of course, you do. Well, Jenny Weatherstone, uh, the leader of Volunteer Ministry Center, says that that actually is not loving the person, that the unintended consequences are enabling and keeping them from ever getting better. She said to a reporter that when this happens to her, she does not give money but uh, refers, uh, says to the person, let me take you where you might receive help. She says many of Knoxville's panhandlers are not homeless and it's not accurate to assume that they are. There are adequate services in Knoxville to meet the immediate needs of the homeless. Three meals a day are served at CARM. You don't have to be enrolled in a program to eat there. Other agencies serve meals, VMC being one of them. They might require you to be involved in programming. There are options without resorting to panhandling. So again, we're meaning well. Uh, we're, we're trying to help, and a lot of times we're actually hurting. So what, what can we do? We're kind of learning this the hard way at All Souls. And I think one of the lessons that we've learned is that God is already at work in our city. When I preached that uh, sermon on prayer uh, a few weeks ago, I received this wonderful letter. I actually preached the same sermon out at Cedar Springs in the morning. And uh, a lady wrote me and said, my husband just retired after being an elder at Cedar Springs for 50 years. (laughs) And we started uh, uh, ministry in 1940s at the University of Tennessee. (laughs) And she went over all the prayer groups that have been going on in the city for 50, 60 years. Uh, and, and it was just so humbling to see that we're just coming in and building on the work of those that have already gone before us. So God's already at work in the city. And he has been for a long, long time. So in, instead of coming in and, and us launching new programs and initiatives, one of the things I think we're learning is that it's far better to discern where the Father is already at work and join Him there. And that's what we mean by partnership. We don't start many new ministries. We partner with the ones that already exist. And actually, Jesus Himself does not initiate ministry. Uh, He discerns where the Father is at work and He joins in. For example, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath And he's asked why he does that, because no work was to be done on the Sabbath. And this is in John 5, verse 17. Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. The Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So when you apply that same principle to us, the Father is already at work in our city, And we seek the peace of the city when we identify where he's at work and and join in. And one of the places where he is already at work is through the churches and ministries that are already here. Now, this is where our paradigm may need to shift a little bit. The New Testament thinks about church in a different way than than we do. For example, if if I ask you, how many churches are there in Knoxville? You know, if we did a little quiz, you know, you might say 40, 50, 60. If you actually... Uh, one answer that I, that I read that based on data was that there are like 723 in Knox County, different churches. But if you ask the Apostle Paul, how many churches are there in Knoxville? He would say, one. There's just one. Yeah, you all meet in different places on Sunday, but there's just, there's just one. We see that in his letters. He writes, to the church of God that is in Corinth. 
to the church of the Thessalonians, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. And so if Paul were addressing uh, the believers in Knoxville, he, he would be writing to all the Knoxvillians who are in Christ, to the church that meets in Knoxville. Now, Jesus, in his final prayer for the disciples, encourages uh, the believers in the cities to express this unity in a visible way. John 17, verse 20. This is the Lord's final prayer. I don't ask for these only, but for those who believe in me through their word, that's the church, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them as you have loved me. So one of the ways that the church of Knoxville can display our unity, and the Lord says that is to be a witness to our neighbors, the church working together, is uh, to partner together and to stop doing things by ourselves. (laughs) Uh, So instead of, uh, we've got a lot of artists in our church. So instead of starting our own school for the arts, we partner with the Joy of Music School or the Community School of the Arts. And instead of saying, we want to be a church that prays for the city ourselves, we do that, but we find ways to partner with other downtown churches in prayer or like they do at the Campus House of Prayer. Um, Instead of starting our own housing ministry, we've got guys in here, gals that could start a housing ministry tomorrow. They have so many skills. But instead of doing that, we, we partner with Habitat for Humanity or Knoxville Leadership Foundation. Instead of starting another homeless ministry, we partner with CARM or VMC. Instead of launching our own urban gardening initiative, we have people here that could do that. We partner with Beardsley Farm. Instead of bringing uh, one of you nurses on staff to, to serve the poor, uh, instead we encourage you to work with Interfaith Clinic or Cherokee Health or Community Action Council. Instead of starting a ministry to immigrants, uh, we, we serve Iraqi refugees by connecting you with Global Seeds or Hispanic refugees by partnering with El Puente. Instead of starting our own ministry to kids, we, we partner with an elementary school or uh, the Amachi Mentoring Program or SOAR or Tribe One or the Inner City Boy Scouts or the YMCA or Urban Young Life or Emerald Youth or the Great Schools Partnership. And when we do this, we can say with Paul what he said to the Philippians, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul is our model. Now, when I first came to Knoxville, the the church was much more divided than it, uh, than it is today. Uh, and God, I think, has been very faithful to, to break down the barriers. And I, I, I think many of the pastors in Knoxville are to be commended for, for doing that. And one of the things that came out of a pastor's prayer movement that uh, was very strong in the 90s and continues to this day is an organization called the Compassion Coalition. And that is designed to help the One Church of Knoxville partner together to serve the city. Uh, It was begun by a young man named Andy Rittenhouse. And and he did a masterful job of laying the foundations. He came up with something called the Salt and Light Guidebook. You may have seen that. It's a list of all the different ministries in the city. And and he began connecting people together. And today, Grant Standifer leads uh, the Compassion Coalition. And and I asked, I wrote him this week, and I said, "I, I know not everyone is is on board with this partnering idea. When you go to churches to speak, what do you say? And, and he wrote me this back. He said, my approach uh, 
in working with churches has been an emphasis on the Trinity. The passage in John 17 is full of father-son relationship, or partnership, if you will, for the sake of the world. Another passage illustrating the partnership of the Trinity is the baptism of Jesus in Matthew 3 and the overtly Trinitarian revelation of the Son, the Spirit, descending like a dove, and the voice from heaven saying, This is my Son. So we see at the inauguration of Jesus' ministry the partnership of Father, Son, and Spirit as He begins to serve, love, feed, heal, bless, etc. It seems to me that our partnering is merely an outworking of the truth and reality of the community of the Trinity for the sake of the world. That's a pretty good email. Kind of rip off there late in the Friday afternoon. And, and I think it's a beautiful theology. He's saying the church of Christ in our city should reflect the God that we worship and serve, and that God lives in partnership. And if the God himself lives in partnership, and we are created in the image of his God, of God, and the church is to reflect the glory of God, then we do that when we partner with each other. Phil Butler lists several benefits of partnership in his book, Well Connected. And he argues that effective partnerships can do a couple of things. If we could go to that slide, David. Uh, Save critical resources, reducing duplication and waste of money, people, and assets. Engage the whole range of spiritual gifts distributed within the church. Share risk, allowing us to consider ideas and dreams that going it alone would seem unthinkable. Empower believers to celebrate diversity while working together in unity. Bring credibility to God's message as we demonstrate the power of restored relationships. Release the power of the Holy Spirit in ways rarely seen when we work independently. And bring hope as participants realize they're not facing the challenge alone. Now, Here's kind of the, the, the trick to this. I think our church over the years has bought into this idea of partnering. But the hard part of it is that first, it's hard to discern who you're supposed to partner with. That's a very prayerful part, process. And then once you've identified that, it's hard to build a long-term, sustaining, effective relationship with an organization. Many of them are just not set up for volunteers, which is, which is odd to say given that there are organizations that live by volunteers. <laughs> so this is an idea that is not as easy as it sounds uh, to do. Um, sometimes it's overwhelming to even know where to begin. And partnering can also be lonely. And, and this, I think, is, is, is the downside of this vision. You know, the other way that we could have done this is to have said, okay, All Souls Church is about is about this school, and we're all going to get involved in this school, and we're going to do it together, and, and there's a lot of benefits to that because we all get fellowship and, and time together. But, and we thought about that over the years, but we decided, based primarily on where God seemed to be at work in you, that rather than all of us doing one or two things, that God was moving in all of your hearts in such wonderful, radical, different ways that we, we needed to get behind that and not kind of just limit it to one or two things. But the problem with that is you can feel like an independent contractor, like you're all alone ministering where you minister. So I don't have a solution to that. I think it could be 
that small groups could begin embracing uh, ministry together and, and, and partnering that way. That might help. Well, just wanted to address the, the question about what about partnering with uh, our neighbors who are not Christians? Um, what about joining with a Muslim or a Jewish or a Buddhist person in, in, in something aimed at the common good of the city? What about a secular organization? Well, uh, it seems wise, at least to me, to say, yes, we can do that unless the organization in question is working directly against the, the mission that God has sent us upon. And that's kind of the way Christians have handled it in the past. In the 19th century, William Wilberforce, the British Christian politician who worked to abolish slavery, he partnered with everybody, Unitarians and secularists, agnostics, to get rid of slavery. Uh, it seems to be uh, that we should work with people of good faith and of goodwill as we care for our cities. Uh, Richard Stearns addressed this question recently in a blog on the Huffington Post. He said, it's true that faith-based and secular organizations will have differences. And then the president of World Vision wrote this. He said, yet while nearly 21,000 children die every day of largely preventable causes, we must not allow our differences to hinder our progress when the contributions of all are desperately needed. If we respect one another's differences and recognize that with those various worldviews come important strengths, then we can break through impediments to accomplish the greater good. There is room for everyone in the fight against poverty and injustice. So I want to end with, with a couple of thoughts. We, we do mean well. The city is complex. Often our attempts to help wind up hurting us if we're not really called to do that in the first place or hurting the people that we're caring for uh, if we do it in the wrong way. And, and, and Lupton's book offers so many examples from all over the world. The money spent by one campus ministry to cover the costs of their Central American mission trip to repaint an orphanage would have been enough to hire two local painters, two full-time teachers, and purchase new uniforms for every student in the school. Uh, Christian students spent $2.4 billion on mission trips in 2005. They normally lasted eight days. Uh, yet often local leaders, Lupton says, feel the trips turn their own people into beggars and take away jobs from the local economy. An Atlanta real estate developer with an enormous heart and deep-pocketed friends raised millions to transform a ravaged inner-city neighborhood, but the project eventually turned ugly. The residents in the neighborhood didn't trust him. Lawsuits were filed. Uh, the project collapsed, and race relations were set back many years. Well, Lupton's book is full of case studies of the law of unintended consequences in effect. So what can we do? Well, we're still going to mess up.